Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Barry Lopez, who died on December 25, 2020, at the age of 75, was a master of the short form, both fiction and nonfiction. His nonfiction, collected in such books as Arctic Dreams and his last published work, Horizon, and his fiction in collections such as Light Action in the Caribbean and Resistance, focused on exploration, biology, morality, politics, philosophy, and so much more. I had the opportunity to interview Barry Lopez three times, first with my co-host, the late Richard A. Lupoff, for Light Action in the Caribbean, the second time four years later for Resistance, and finally in 2019 for Horizon. This first interview, recorded November 30th, 2000, in the interregnum between that year's election and the Supreme Court's Bush v. Gore decision, focuses both on Barry Lopez's fiction and on the political life of the United States. There are points where it sounds as if he's speaking about current events. The prescience is uncanny. Welcome to Cover to Cover. This is Richard A. Lupoff. And I'm Richard Walensky, and our guest is Barry Lopez with a new collection of short stories, Light Action in the Caribbean. Barry Lopez alternates books of short stories with books of essays. Uh, As I was reading your short stories, it struck me that these would be the kind of stories that would write if if Borges met Russell Banks. I wonder myself what would have happened if those two gentlemen had met. (laughs) Borges was someone I didn't discover until later in my reading life, by which time I was already writing in a vein very much like he did, and certainly not to put myself on the same plane as Borges, but... It was interesting to me as a young man to see that I aspired to the same kinds of conjunctions between so-called reality and so-called fantasy. Um, That whole realm of magic realism or lo real marioso, the quality of the magic within the real, we tend in the United States to think of that as an invention of Latin American writers, where Latin American writers said they sort of picked up the technique from Faulkner. And in fact, in the world's literatures, we're the oddballs with our insistence on a very circumscribed reality, the the manifestation of what is magical in the real world is a component of every world literature and never had to be separated out or asked to uh, come to the table, as it were. And Russell is a friend is uh, someone I've often talked to about the position of a fiction writer with regard to the reader. What is your relationship there? 
Um, and I told him that coming from the point of view of an, of an essayist, that I always saw myself as the reader's companion, that my work was to be a companionable presence with the reader, a person who introduced the reader to a landscape of ideas or events and was not there to control the reader's reaction or emotion. And uh, I remember talking to Russell about that once and him putting his arm around my shoulder. He was so excited about the idea and he said, that's exactly what I feel like as a novelist. I am the reader's companion, not the reader's authority. And I, I hope I'm, I am maintaining the same position um, in these, this collection of stories. These stories are, for the most part, short, some of them very, very short. Uh, do you ever feel, once you begin to explore a world, a reality such as those in uh, Lords of War, for instance, which I think was the story that struck me most in this book, that this really calls for further exploration? I guess the partial answer to that is I've listened to people explain to a third party what happens in a short story of mine. And it sometimes takes longer than it takes me to read the story. And I think that the way that I work, the story is so densely packed. In other words, there are so many things going on that you can't really leave anything out and convey what the story was about. So the length of the stories seems to me digestible. If the story went on 20 or 30 pages, um, you'd be so buried in what was going on emotionally that, that you couldn't breathe. I do think that a difference between fiction and nonfiction is that the essay ends on the page with the period. It's over. In a short story, the story keeps going after you look up from the page. And for me, I want that open-endedness. I want the reader to go on with the story. But to answer more directly your question, I sometimes think I would like to take uh, as a point of departure somewhere in a story and keep going. And, um, you know, at this point in my life, what I'm obviously turning over is if I were to write a novel, what would it look like? And I don't feel compelled to do that. But now I see for the first time in my life the kind of structure that I would need as a writer to write something of, of great length in fiction. I see a, a story called uh, Mornings in Quarain, and it strikes me that that story in particular must go on. We don't know what is going to happen. Uh, a package is being delivered, but we don't know what's in the package. Yes, and, and uh, again, I think that we don't necessarily have to know. And what, what Barry Lopez thinks is in the package is that's one way to go. And, and what Richard Walensky sees in the package, that's another way to go. I, I, don't, I don't feel like an owner of the story and that what I believe is going on here has to be the conclusion that the reader reaches. You know, somebody said once in my presence to somebody else about stories of mine, he knows when to stop. In other words, that, that there's a lot there for the reader that's under the reader's control, under it falls into the realm of the reader's imagination. This is a crucial issue for me in writing that 
we're inundated in our lives with people who pretend to authority and we're many of us treated like uh, nincompoops or students or those who don't know and have to be informed. And, and many people who, especially people who read widely, no matter what they do as a way of making an income, are astute and perceptive people who have a bigger range of ideas than are contained in American newspapers, for example. And I think as a writer, when you come into company like that, you just want to tell a story that is convey a pattern of emotions and events that's stimulating for the reader and which the reader can apply in a metaphorical way to her life in any dimension that she happens to have it at that moment. But the idea that the writer is some sort of authority and all of us are waiting to be informed about the meaning of life is, is frankly preposterous. And it creates the landscape for the writer as celebrity, which I think is, is deadly. There, there, we have no history except in collapsing societies of storytellers as celebrities. That's an amazing statement. Uh, could you give an example? Could I give an example? No, I don't think of anything really except our own society, which is what I'm immersed in at the moment. I think our society is in a state of, of uh, collapse. I, I don't know how, how much faster people can dance this jig on a thin wire. Uh, ostensibly, there's uh, money to burn and everybody's doing fine. But if you draw back the, the lace curtain, you see um, enormous suffering in the United States. Uh, you see uh, uh, people starving to death in the United States and one scam after another tearing a few coins away from somebody who only has six or eight coins, some single mother trying to raise three or four children all by herself. The, the, the suffering in the United States is monumental and it's masked over by this incredible loud P.T. Barnum circus run by people um, of, of utterly, to me, no consequence, and Dave, Mr. Trump and, and uh, <laughs> you know, the, these people are a dime a dozen. There's no imagination there. There's just uh, the ability to manipulate figures and make money. Making money isn't an admirable skill. Making love is an admirable skill or creating an atmosphere in which people feel safe in being in love. That's, that's commendable. But, you know, I, I, I think when you have a society like ours where people appoint themselves as storytellers, what we have to do as readers is stand up and say, you know what, the stories you're telling don't help us. And we would just as soon you stepped off the stage and let other men and women whose stories help us with our real day-to-day -day problems and remind us of what we have forgotten so we can remember who we are and again aspire to the ideals that we, we wish to attain in our lives. Let these people on the stage. But in a commercial country like ours, the, where you know, in a figurative sense, the banks run the show. Um, I, I think maybe more than figurative. Well, <laughs> but, you know, but. I don't know if the banks run it. I don't know what the banks run. They, they send you a statement with charges you've never heard of for things you never did. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Walensky, you were chomping at the fifth Yeah, word. yeah. Uh, following up on what you just said about the country falling apart and how you, Barry Lopez, relate to it in being asked a question about the violence in some of the stories in this book, particular uh, The Deaf Girl and Light Action in the Caribbean, the title story, 
You said, at this point in my life, I'm inclined toward a more direct confrontation with darkness. Yes. And is the reason for that is because of your perception of what what's going on then? I don't think so. I, I think like many women and men who grew up in the 60s and, and in, in a some sense cut their political teeth on issues of, of civil rights, environmental movement, the women's movement, many of us from those years never stepped away from the principles or the fight we just conducted in a different way. And my way of addressing this was to try to find ground as a writer in fiction and nonfiction to clarify what it is that we were talking about. I can't come and say, here's an answer. I'm not a person with answers. But I hope I'm somebody who can see well enough to create a platform where somebody who's politically astute or a social organizer can say, oh, I understand a little bit more about what I want to do now. I think in all of my work as a writer, I have expected that an adult reader comes to the page uh, as someone who has been driven to her knees or his knees in some room with a closed door and wondered why in God's name they were ever going to bother to get up again, has been left by the side of the road like a gutted dog in some cruel human act. That's our stuff. That's what we do to each other. And our struggle is to get back on our feet and dust ourselves off and reinvent our lives. So if I'm writing an evocation of the beauty of light in the Arctic, for example, I don't expect somebody to say, oh, well, this is the whole story of life. I, what I hope they say is this is a writer who also knows what it is to suffer cruelty and yet chooses to enunciate something uh, in a more hopeful vein. But it's always been implied in my work that darkness is present. And what I wanted to do in Light Action in the Caribbean is to say, here is darkness. Here is a story where, for example, in that title story, a man and a woman who are just, um, you know, they're, they're the kind of people that all of us want to edge up next to at a cocktail party or something because the way they talk to each other is so simple-minded and their pretensions are so extraordinary that we're hoping for the really stupid line that we can remember <laughs> and take to our friends and say, you wouldn't believe what this guy said at this party. So, you know, we're voyeurs in the story really with this simple-minded couple. And then at the end of the story when these three sociopaths show up, I think your emotions as a reader is, oh my God, you know, these people are just kind of silly, but no one, no one should encounter this kind of psychotic wrath. And there's no trap door in the story. There's no way to say, oh, well, they'll be brought to justice or someone will care. They're just wiped out of life. And that's what we live in. That's what issues like Columbine or, for example, are all about. And what I said to my editor at one point was, I want this collection to be leavened by unmitigated evil. I want you to move through the collection and sense that you can choose to lean into the light, if you will, but you do so with the explicit knowledge that we all know what's going on right underneath the surface. And that seems to me an important thing to say now, to not deny the bad straits, the terrible straits that we're in, but to say we have the opportunity to choose something else. Do we want to do that? Dick Lupoff. One thing that I perceive in 
the stories in light action in the, in the Caribbean is change, that, that the world is changing and maybe that people are changing. Certainly that tomorrow will be different from today as today is different from yesterday. I wonder if it would be unfair to ask you to look ahead and, and say maybe a year hence, five years hence, 50 years hence. Are, are we just going over the precipice or what's going to happen? I'd hesitate to hazard a guess because I have no authority to offer an opinion. Um, if you, pardon me for disagreeing, but the, <laughs> the mere fact that you think about these things, which I, I'm afraid that 95, maybe 99% of, of us don't, makes you an authority at least to the small extent that anyone can be. Well, um, then, then stepping out on a limb, I'll say my sense of this is that if we divorce ourselves from issues of politics, social organization, economic theory, the rise and fall of capitalism, all of the, all of the familiar villains, we have to look straight into the face of population, human population growth, and global warming. If we don't do something about these issues, um, it will not be our good fate to disappear from the face of the earth, which is sort of a child's view of salvation. You know, it'll all blow up and then we'll be gone and everything will be okay. I think what's going to happen is that we're going to be living on in an environment so impoverished that it will further destroy our imaginations. And that's the great risk for me at the moment, that fundamentalism in religion, in science, in politics and economics has such a firm grip on our lives that we are desperate in, in for ways in which to exercise fully our imaginations. So if you'd come to me and say, okay, here's the magic wand, um, what would you do? I think the two things that I would do would be to create circumstances in which people could more fully imagine their lives. And I don't think that the internet and web pages and things like that are evidence that this is going on. I think that's, that's not really of, of consequence in some ways. And the other thing I think we need is we need to be in the presence of grown-ups. So much of the emotional landscape in American business and in American politics is the province of adolescent boys. You can see in these venues the same emotions, uh, and particularly with regard to men, the same set of relationships that 17-year-old boys have to each other and to cheerleaders and to my school. It's all wonderful to see when you're 17 and you should go through it. But what we need are men and women who, uh, for me, the definition of an adult is somebody who no longer needs to be supervised. They do not need to be told what to do. And we're living in a time in which the federal government has no other choice but to behave as the parent and try to supervise the adolescent, which is American business, and tell them, no, it's really not right. It's not okay for them to poison people and to wreak havoc on families and destroy communities in order to sell products, to, to subtly imply that the best thing for you is to be the purchaser of a product, not the beloved of another human being. Th this is insanity. 
But as long as the federal government is stuck in the role of being the parent to spoiled brats, we're in a logjam. And I know some politicians uh, have already, and, and CEO types of people that I've spoken with, they're on the verge of wondering what is going to be the price for a man or woman who stands up and has a spine who says what they believe, is open to criticism, is vulnerable to the body politic, and says, we need to face the issues that are killing us, and we need to do it like grown-ups who realize that the lives of their children are imperiled. We've got to create a place not in which we tinker a little bit with this 200-year-old experiment in democracy that grows out of the American and French revolutions, but have got to address something nobody ever imagined before and find some way to reimagine our lives. And what we most need is grown-up men and women, people who do not need to be supervised, who know how to raise their children to take up positions of authority in our society and get ourselves away from boys who just want to date girls, have fun, make a lot of money. This is what kids do. But this is, this is what our government has become. The government is being run by the kids during all the conflict between the various sides in the aftermath of the election. Occasionally, a voice would be heard on television, newspapers saying, where are the grown-ups? Where is an adult who will say what needs to be said? Because everybody, whether you agree with one side or the other, is acting like a child. I make a long leap across the Great Pacific at this moment and think that one of the interesting things about traveling in Australia is that Australian newspapers go to American writers and interview them or do stories about them when they have no book out. The, the idea there is that newspapers should be talking to people other than politicians and business people. And I, I find if I'm in the Bay Area and doing reading and you know, in Berkeley or in Santa Cruz or up in Sonoma or something like that, I find always these audiences are composed of thoughtful men and women who are actively aware of the of the consequences of their lives. And many of them in conversation or in the questions that they pose in an audience, they make me feel uh, very comfortable and I'm honored by having people like that come and say, I'd like to hear you read, I'd like to hear these stories of yours. I think that you're correct that government and business, you know, to use to be um, uh, hyperbolic about it are, you know, are run by children. The fact is the adults are there. They're there. It's like um, look at what happened to John Steinbeck and later to Edward R. Murrow with regard to agricultural issues in the state of California. Here were two people who told a story that a lot of people in power didn't want to hear. They didn't want to know what in, in – you know, when, when Edward R. Murrow did this show called – a harvest of shame. They did not, not want to know what the reality of life was for the braceros and everybody who was working in the fields. And Edward R. Murrow, to his great credit, when people said, you know, you told only one side of the story, said the story only has one side. And he was not saying as a journalist he knew what was right and he knew the right side of the story. He was saying, 
A man in political and economic power has access to the editorial pages of the newspaper anytime he picks the phone up because he has lunch at the same club with the guys running the paper. The Brasero has no one, no one to go to except a journalist like Edward R. Murrow. And in that part of my life, which is a, the life of a reporter or a journalist, that's what I want to do. I want to be a responsible conduit for the voices that are not heard. And it's, it's wearying to me to meet as many good people as I do on the road and think to myself, why don't we ever hear from these men and women? Why every time I open the newspaper am I reading what some ordinary garden variety television celebrity has to say about what's going on in the Middle East? They're never going to tell us anything that, that we don't already know. What we want to know are where are the bright men and women who can face these terrible problems like the problems in the Middle East and give us some sense of resolution. It's not an impossible thing to solve. It requires imagination and maturity. But do you think then, Barry Lopez, that those bright men and women are not drawn to positions of power because of the nature of power and positions of power and and, and their own nature, whereas those positions attract exactly the people that we don't want in them. And that leads yeah. to the dilemma we face today. That's what de Tocqueville said about our problem, you know, that the second-rate minds are drawn to positions of, of power, of economic power and political power. But you know, we don't need these national organizations. Look, look at what's happened in environmental uh, circles, these very conservative uh, organizations, I mean, I'm talking from a political point of view, people who did not want to, to rock the boat too much, the Ottoman Society, Sierra Club, all of these national organizations, they carry along doing their work. But what we've seen in the last 15 years is the rise of what's called grassroots activism. These are local people working ad hoc, directing their attention to local problems and solving them. And this is called a redistribution of power, I guess. And, you know, the, the, there was a French Revolution and there was an American Revolution. And you can have revolution without slaughter. Do you remember um, this image of what's called the big house that during the Civil War, slaves had to put on their best clothes and comb their hair in a certain way and leave their their uh, shacks and walk up to the big house to speak to the owners. Well, we've had this big house paradigm in social organization in the United States for, for 200 years. And what that means is that a group of people who have economic and political power are going to tell everybody else what to do and the rest of us have to dress neatly and make ourselves presentable. And what we need to do is, I don't think, go up there and burn the big house down because that's a, an impetuous act and I think an immoral act. But what would happen or what, uh, what I see grassroots activism doing is every one of these people is going up to the big house uh, and taking a nail out of the framing and telling people who live in the big house that it's not, it, we can't have it anymore, it's not working and this thing is going to collapse when enough nails come out of it. So it's not a violent uh, reaction, but a concerted effort to address something that's 
that's foul in our culture. And I want to say now we're a long ways from wherever we were, you know, from light action in the Caribbean. But when someone, Ralph Nader, made an attempt to pull out those uh, some of those nails by saying, you know, whoever inhabits the house is the same person, suddenly, because there are differences, there are clear differences, suddenly those people are saying, well, damn it, you know, look what you did. Look, look what your activism, your attempt to show something, your attempt to be an adult, look what it did. And suddenly he's the bad guy. Well, he's suddenly the bad guy. And some days ago, we all voted for a president of the United States. We don't know who that's going to be yet. And we don't know what uh, Mr. Nader's efforts um, are going to come to. Uh, I, I'm not somebody who wants a short-term view about how disruptive his presence was in the presidential election. I'd like to see where, where this is going. I mean, huge constitutional and democratic issues of democracy have been raised by the presidential election of the year 2000. And as we sort through them in the courts or in the legislatures, um, we're going to be seeing the outline of a future that we're going to have to bear up under. And it's going to prompt us to ask questions about whether we want these kinds of forms of government, uh, especially ones in which business plays such a large role without being as responsible as you have to be as a citizen. There's another issue I'd like to get to, in a sense, totally divorced from what we've been discussing, in another sense, I think profoundly connected, and that is the relationship between technology and nature as you see these two institutions. Nature's not an institution. Well, <laughs> you know, concept. Technology is, uh, you know, something that that's just come along and, and we're trying to figure out what our relationship to it is and what the consequences of a long-term, full-scale, accelerated involvement with technological solution is, is going to buy us in terms of the things we really want, which is basically to go to heaven. Whether it's heaven on earth or whatever it happens to be, most of us want to live ensconced in that which we call God. We want to be inside the divine. And um, something tells me that being in love with someone and having that person love you is probably a better bet than catching something on TV, no matter how special the special is. You know, <laughs> I don't. Not very much of my imagination runs into this realm of of technological this this kind of cataclysmic encounter between nature and and technology. What I mostly think about are the kinds of things that I write about in stories like this. They're very small scale and they have to do with individual men and women who have an opportunity to step into something and choose to do so or not to do so and what happens to a person who makes a slight shift in her life or his life, how that affects their, their future life. There's a level at which it's wonderful to sit around and talk about these uh, large issues, but large issues, the discussion of large issues suggests solution and it also suggests that there's some kind of expert who's going to ride over the horizon like Shane and straighten <laughs> this out. And I don't think either thing is going to happen. I think when historians look back at this era, the last 50 years of the 20th and the first 50 years of the 21st century, what they're going to see is the distraction 
of large-scale events and the importance of small-scale events. Something like the WTO protests in Seattle was as huge, I think, historically as the protests in Washington in the 60s about the war. Uh, if for no other reason than this group of young people said what we never could have said 30 years ago, which is a phenomenally short time. 30 years ago on Earth Day, if a person had stood up and said, I want to address issues of social justice, most people would have said, what does that have to do with the environment, as the term was used at the time? And what the WTO protesters said in Seattle was, there's no difference between issues of social justice and so-called environmental issues. So what I'm looking at as a writer is, first of all, not I am not in the place of anybody with any, any more intelligence or insight into these complicated issues as uh, any more than anybody else. You know, I feel on the same floor with everyone. But my contribution here, as your contribution, both of you, is to bring voices into the community like this. My responsibility is to tell a story that helps. Tell a story that one of our colleagues or a listener can can uh, can read, and and from that story be reminded of the emotional satisfaction of doing good work with your hands or of helping a child discover what abstractions in mathematical equations are all about. Each of us doing our work at home and in a scale where, where nobody else notices it, that's where the revolution is going to be. And I think most of the stories that I write proceed on that. There's no great hero coming across the horizon. The, a thing I think I have been after for 35 years as a writer, to go back to something we talked about earlier, is not where is their malfeasance or where is their human breakdown. It's everywhere. What I want to see is if you're in the bush for three weeks with a scientist and they go through self issues of self-doubt and what does science mean and their marriage is falling apart or you know whatever it happens to be, there's going to be a moment when that person has a kind of divine light around them and it'll be when that which they love most they are doing best. And that's the moment I want to see because to me, what we need in literature is not to have reiterated our failings and the ways in which we break down and all of the problems that we are heir to, but is there any evidence that's plausible of men and women who have these moments of beauty in their life when they know who they are and they know what they mean and they can convey that to another person who can convey it to somebody else. That's what I want to do as a writer. And that says nothing about what other writers might do because literature itself and the writer must be free to go whatever direction it takes. I mean, what happens to Barry Lopez if you find a story going in a direction and you're going, I don't know what people are going to think about this one. The day that I decide that I've got to write to a reputation that I have is the day I die as a writer. The accident and privilege of my life is to have known many men and women who were senior to me, senior writers, and in private conversations heard them say how much they regretted in, in some ways becoming caricatures of themselves, writing a story that pleased and that matched their reputation and the book sold well and people bought it. 
but they were dying inside. You know, for me, at the age of 55 and in this book, I'm dealing with things I, I've never dealt with before. Children, for example, the relationship of of parents to children or these explicit stories that are very violent. There's a story called The Deaf Girl in which a young girl is, is shot and raped and left for dead. And the narrator who assumes that he is the girl's superior in experience and in wisdom discovers at the end of the story that it's quite the other way around. What he needs to learn is how this girl has gotten herself in the last two years of her life from a position of fury and the desire to wreak vengeance on those who harmed her to a position where she's transcended vengeance and is on some other path. This is a, a young woman who is way beyond having the court settle something. This is a woman who is in full command of her presence in the world, and she's 12 years old. And this guy who's probably in his 40s or 50s has to hit the brakes and say, oh, I guess I should be listening to you, and it's maybe me who's the deaf guy and not you who's the deaf girl. Question then. When Barry Lopez sits down and writes and a story emerges, are you creating the story or are you finding the story? Does it exist somewhere in reality or in unreality and, and you discover it? I think it exists as an impulse, not as a finished thing. An easy way to think about it is something is moving through you that is emotional and the technical skills that you have as a writer to organize a narrative and to to create a language that, that makes it comprehensible and and in uh, some ways elegant and clear, all of that skill is what you're bringing to the impulse. It's a funny thing for me to to realize that some people believe because um, you know, I might have a reputation as somebody with strong feelings about environmental issues that when I write a story, what I'm looking for is a box in which to put that opinion. But the fact is that I can't change who I am. So what is going to be played out in a story is going to be reflective of the moral universe, more or less, that I inhabit. Although I might use the first person uh, as I do in one of these stories, Ruben Mendoza Vega, to speak in the first person but have the person be somebody I despise. I don't begin a short story knowing where it's going. I have no interest or desire to, to convey a message or to make a point. I think if you start out in a work of fiction to make a point about something, it's probably not going to be very good because you'll be ignoring the characters in order to get to a statement. That's what goes on in an essay. An essay is much more intentional than a work of fiction. So in these stories, for the most part, I just heard a sentence and I wrote the sentence at the typewriter and then I learned the second sentence and it just went on. And I might have a half-formed thought as I was going along that I bet we end up with this character in such and such an environment. But I don't know that that's where we'll end up. And I know from working in both forms that when I finish an essay, I know it's finished. I mean, I type that period and I know that that's it. I can feel the door closing. With a work of fiction, I am often sitting there at the typewriter with my hands poised over the keys thinking, oh, it's <laughs> over. 
if there's any place where the fiction writer can make his or her point to the audience, it's in the title. So where would you choose the title and how would that emerge? And secondarily, you chose among all of the stories in this book to use as your title the single most shocking and violent. I'm going to give you the most honest answer I can, although it might sound like I'm dissembling. The story that I thought would be the title of the collection, uh, you know, how do we say the collection, is a story in here called The Letters of Heaven, which is about two saints who fall in love and become physical lovers and in the story simply transcend the organization of the 16th century Catholic Church. And I felt that that's, that was such a pivotal story for me to write that that's what the collection should be called. But then people at Knopf said, you know, heaven, that, that word sends some funny signals to people. So I don't know if we want to call a collection of stories the letters of heaven. It, you know, it, and so I said, well, okay, I, I guess I can see that. So what should we call it? And without hesitating, two or three people said, well, uh, um, light action in the Caribbean. So the book is called that because, I don't know, because I write a lot about light and I travel a lot. So you've got this business about light of some sort in the title and the, and the Caribbean. So that's kind of sending a signal that Barry Lopez is writing about light and and other continents or something, I don't know. But it is also, as you point out, the title of the most violent story in the collection. And all I can say is that there's no point to the collection where I want to say um, life is ultimately violent. I mean, I think that the story that ends the collection, the story called The Mappist, in some way brings the two streams of, in fact, it was a, it was a review in the, in the Chronicle that, that pointed out how this story was the logical story to end with because it brought these Borgesian components and these components of Hemingway or, or in, your, in your suggestion, Russell Banks together. So if I look at the collection and somebody says, well, what is this about? I would probably say, whatever it is that's converging in the last story in the book. But I never would have put light action in the Caribbean at the end of the book because it would then, the book would end in a place that I don't stand for as a writer. What I want to stand for is, yes, I've looked evil in the face, maybe not as fearlessly as Cormac McCarthy, but I'm looking evil in the face and where I want to put my next step is in this place where there is a sense of hope. So how it got to be the title of the book is one of these awkward kind of flip-flopped things that it, that's, that's really not so deeply intentional as it might seem. When you create a title, how does it emerge? Does it just come full-blown when the story is completed? It, it, most of these stories were, well, most, I don't know, I'd have to go back and count, a story called Stolen Horses, um, a story called The Mappist, those were titles that were in my mind for years. I didn't know what the story was. There are other stories. I don't know if I can think of one right now. I think the construction of the Rachel was a story that I had finished the first draft before I understood what the title was. 
So sometimes a title, the appearance of the title can mean that you finally have got the lock in the process of rewriting that tells you what you're up to so that you can enter that thinking part of your mind, which is the rewriting mind. But a story like Stolen Horses, you know, I, I remember writing that down on a piece of paper next to the typewriter one day and then years later having an encounter with horses in Idaho knowing that that had something to do with this title. And then several years after that, driving in Northern California along a river, thinking about nothing in particular, I heard this voice say, what we did was wrong, of course. And as soon as I heard that voice, I knew that's the narrator of Stolen Horses and he did something wrong and that's the start of this story. And I got home, I typed the word Stolen Horses on the top of a page scrolled it up in the typewriter and wrote what we did was wrong, of course, comma, and then waited for the rest of the story and it just it just opened up. So sometimes the title drives the story, sometimes the story turns around and invents the title I need as a writer to understand what the story is about. When I read the Ruben Mendoza Vega story, two books came to mind. One is Pale Fire and the other is The Dissertation, both of which use footnotes to tell their story. The Dissertation is lesser known. We can put that aside. But Pale Fire uh, is perhaps Nabokov's masterpiece. Well, you know, here we're on an awkward ground because it's often assumed by me or many other people when I read work by an author who's younger than the author Nabokov in this case, that that must have been the, an influence or an inspiration. And not having read Pale Fire, I have to say that, you know, this is not an idea that came from there. I, I think writers invent and reinvent and reinvent and you occasionally find yourself on ground that's been given, not claimed, but given to some other writer. What I had in mind with Ruben Mendoza Vega was the arrogance of pedants. And I saw this uh, incredibly self-important man sitting down and the trick of it was going to be he was going to write a, a history of the United States in a single paragraph. And in his footnotes, we learn that this is a, a man who's cut off from his emotional life. He doesn't understand why his son committed suicide. I wanted to make it as realistic as I could as an act of pedantry. So in the bibliography of 30-some books in seven languages, I, you know, I created these titles in English and then went to friends who spoke Japanese and Polish and whatnot and got them translated exactly the way that I wanted them to work and then checked to make sure that the book being published in France, where would a book of such right-wing politics be published, you know, because it, it would be for us, it's a book published in New York or in Birmingham, Alabama, you know, we'd get a clue right away. So I just wanted to invent, and that's it, I just wanted to invent. And I, I think that part of the motivation for doing light action in the Caribbean was that I wanted to invent. I wanted to try different ways that I have been up to for years of telling stories. In the Garden of the Lords of War might be described by some people as a work of science fiction because it's set in the future. You know, people talk about Pale Fire or David Foster Wallace with regard to this story, um, uh, Ruben Mendoza Vega. 
they're all inventions, and, and all writers engage in this kind of inventing, and sometimes you really are indebted to somebody that gives you a word or a line, and other times it's just something you stumbled into on your own. At this point, the interview ended, and for the radio show, I rejiggered some of the conversation and did quite a bit of cutting to create a more appropriate 30-minute program. But the discussion went on for another 10 minutes, and luckily the cassette tape kept rolling. So here's the rest of our discussion. Both Dick and I ventured a bit from our microphones, but Barry Lopez stayed right clearly on his. I'd be very curious about what both of you have experienced with this, because it's come up with this book. It's not an objection, really, but it's an people, uh, reviewers, slightly uncomfortable with the fact that there's a moral dimension to the stories. It's tantamount to saying that a moral point of view, whatever it is, is not appropriate to a work of fiction. Where this gets us is if you have a writer like me who's very wary of autobiography, every one of these stories is something I've made up. You know, Stolen Horses just to pick one, is I had a title, I had that voice in my head, what we did was wrong, of course, and then it got out of hand, as I suppose such things often do. That voice and seeing some horses turning around each other in, in the dusk light in Idaho, that's all I had. And the story that I made up is not about me as the narrator. I mean, I'm not a working class guy in Eastern Oregon. I don't, you know, I just know superficially about it because it's out my back door somewhere. But I'm not writing about myself. And the last thing I want to do is to say, hey, I'll be the moral authority as the writer and tell you whatever the, all these characters should be doing. I don't have any interest in that. But there's, a, there's, there's this way that people have of addressing the story and they say, well, Barry Lopez is a moral person and has this moral framework around him. Therefore, he must be using fiction to enforce his morality, which is antithetical to an act of, 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 of creative art. But that's why I asked that question before, when I said, you know, trying to control your work. Yeah. For the reader, that's why I asked that, because if it isn't, if whatever you're doing is not organic to the fiction, yes. then, of course, it's going to, you know, emerge into certain you know, in kind of a false way. Remember we interviewed many years ago um, somebody, different kind of writer, a guy named Joe Gores, who was actually politically conservative, who said, it was a very good statement, he said, you cannot be politically correct in fiction because you have to flow with whatever yes, yeah. is doing, is, is happening there. Right. And, and to me, that I've, I've always remembered that because that, that to me is, is the bottom line, whether, whatever you want to call politically correct. Right. You know, you can't do it because the moment that you try to mold it in a particular direction, it's going to ring false. I wrote a novel that never got published, but there was one scene in it, and I don't remember if it was you or Frank Robinson, said, your characters are puppets. They're doing what they need to do in order for you to get to the next, you know, the next stage scene of the or, book. Yeah. And I realized that that was one of the key elements of writing, is that the moment the characters become puppets in whatever aspect of the story becomes puppet, it falls apart. Yeah, bottom falls out of it. In, in a way, Barry, this gets back to a question that I asked before and you responded to as to whether you 
whether you create the story or discover the story. Yes. Yeah. In that it, it seems to me that at, at any given moment, let, let's just, you know, we'll take a snapshot, page 236, paragraph 4. As of that moment, there are certain characters with certain natures, certain relationships exist among them, and certain events have already transpired up to this point. What happens next must be dictated by those things, Absolutely. those characters, the relationships, Absolutely. the nature, and so forth, not by the author saying, now in the next chapter, uh, there's going to be a bank robbery or something. If there is a bank robbery in the next chapter, it has to be implicit oh, at yeah. this point. If it's not implicit at this point, it shouldn't happen at that point. Uh, I interviewed a writer named David Levitt, and we were talking about for him as a gay writer, what it means to have gay characters as opposed to a straight person. And he said the problem that he always encountered in that was that the default was the straight people. So therefore, if you were going to make gay characters, there had to be a reason for them to be there. And that would tie in with getting from point A to point C, at what point is the default? So the earlier thing having to appear later on, you know, is part of the default. And I think it's really tough if it's not, I'm not sure what I'm trying, do you follow what I'm? Partly, but this is a, the larger issue of political correctness. Yeah. There, there was a, a marvelous book called Fist Stick Knife Gun by a guy named Jeff Canada. He's uh, a guy, he grew up in Harlem, um, and he's built this institute in Harlem that is very street savvy about holding families together, relating to schools, relating to neighborhood and whatnot. He's, he's up there at the near genius level. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the Clinton administration has been baiting one hook after another, trying to reel him in, and he just says, sorry, it's my place, get out of my yard. And I met him, he and... Um, Kenny Chenault, who is the president of American Express, uh, they were classmates at Bowdoin, and myself and another friend all had breakfast a couple of months ago to talk about political issues, to talk about what Kenny was doing as the main drive mm -hmm. of a huge financial engine, and our attitude was, Gorsh, Moore, Bush, Cush, who cares? <laughs> you know, that it, it's not who cares, it's just... What we need to get done, that's not going to happen there. So how about how about you guys? What are we going to do here? Got a couple of billion dollars. Got yeah. some dot-com people who really have conscience. Can we, can, we, can we break out of this? We just have to invent it. Just have to invent it. So Jeff is sitting there talking, and, and Kenny, myself, and this guy, Marion. And we walked out of this the breakfast room there at their corporate headquarters in New York. And Jeff turned to me, and he said, we've got to discover a politics that goes beyond race. He said, our parents were committed to affirmative action, and we still have to have that in place. We've still got to be on the watch, but we gotta get out of here. And it, it, to me, it applies across the board. I am so tired of, of this pussyfooting around about, well, if there's not blacks and they're not gays and they're not this, that, 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 I don't fucking care who's at the table. And I'm tired of listening to, we have to have a terrible human being who happens to be gay or a terrible human being who happens to be Chinese at the table, otherwise we can't do anything. I just want to say, let's get 
the best, most imaginative grown-up people at the table who don't care where they come from, what their formal education is, and get it done. Because the watch is ticking here. Sure. And if you look at population growth and global warming, we don't have time for political correctness. John Kitzhaber, who's our governor in, in Oregon, he, he, well, we went and had dinner with him the other night. And I said, John, here's what I want to know. Why do both Republicans and Democrats in the state of Oregon vote for you? and trust you. And he said, it's because I don't want the job that bad. And because I don't want the job that bad, I'm not sitting here micromanaging a set of polls to figure out what can I say that will get me another four years. Mm. What I want to do is say, this stinks. My name is John Kitzhaber. I'm the governor of the state of Oregon. And this gambling thing here on this Indian just stinks. And here's why. And people will say, well, fuck, you don't know what you're talking about. And But what they all say is, Oh, a spine, somebody who actually stands up and says what he means. I'm thinking about some other things that you said with regard to this collection, and one of them is there was a review in which a woman pointed out what an ethnic jumble there is in these stories, that there's no hierarchy. Here's this Ticano gardener, and uh, Martin de Porres is black, and so there's no special attention to anybody's ethnic position. There is awareness of their economic position, and that's the world I live in. While initial reports indicated that Barry Lopez died from prostate cancer, the Washington Post revealed that there was more to it. In September of 2020, his beloved home in the Cascade Mountains between Bend and Eugene, Oregon, was destroyed in the massive fires that ravaged the state. Lost were his original manuscripts, his artwork, and all that he'd collected from his journeys over the years. Shortly thereafter, according to his wife, he began developing cardiac issues that contributed to his death. The second interview with Barry Lopez for his book Resistance will be posted in a couple of months, and the third interview for Horizon, which was posted in 2019, will be reposted shortly after that. This interview was digitized and edited during the last week of December 2020, and the entire recording has never seen the light of day until now. You've been listening to an interview with the late Barry Lopez, who died on Christmas Day 2020 at the age of 75. The interview was recorded on November 30th, 2000, while he was on tour for a short story collection, Light Action in the Caribbean. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>